Good morning, guys. Hey, before we jump in, um, I wanted to just pray specifically for <clears throat> Las Vegas and those that are just suffering. Um, obviously, this past week was another um, vibrant reminder that we live in a deeply broken, um, messed up uh, rebellious world against God and against neighbor. That's the root of it. There's a rebellion that's intrinsic to humanity that is Godward and towards neighbor. Because if that was fixed, then those types of things wouldn't happen. And again, when we have those types of things take place, they remind us of how fragile life is, how broken humanity is, and how really for us as followers of Jesus how desperately we want and need the power and the grace of Jesus and how we pray as followers of Jesus that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's what I want to pray. I just want to pray for healing over people's hearts and people's lives and um, in God's purposes. His aim is not to just rid the world of bad events, but to actually rid humanity of the evil bentedness that leads us to do those bad things. Does that make sense? God is really, his aim is to change your heart, change my heart, because uh, intrinsic to every one of us are at least in seed form what we saw put on display in just full-on bad fruit form last Sunday night, just pure evil. Um, it's all part of us, but God wants to bring healing to that by transforming our hearts to say yes to God, to welcome his forgiveness, his washing, his cleansing, his new life, that not only changes our disposition towards God, but also changes our disposition towards our neighbor, those that we oftentimes find um, uh, repulsive or we find at conflict to heal our hearts, to transform us. So I want to pray for healing. I want to pray for us as we process this type of stuff and that we would be a people that are constantly asking God for his kingdom to come his will be done on earth, because that's, that's who we are called to be. So let me pray. We'll jump in. So God, thank you. Thank you for your grace in the midst of real brokenness. Um, again, Lord, as shocking as what happened last Sunday night was, we realize, Lord, that these things just continue to happen. Our world is broken and is in desperate need of you, Jesus. We are broken. We are in desperate need of you, Jesus. So we ask, God, bring your kingdom. Let your kingdom come, your order, your reign, your goodness. God, to reorder, reorganize our hearts, reprioritize, God, the things that we place as great in our hearts and our lives. God, bring healing to the brokenness all around us. Pray for those families, um, loved ones, people that have had deeply vested interest in Many that have not only been murdered, but also the hundreds that have been wounded. It's just mind-boggling to think of how much damage and destruction uh, took place. But Jesus, please bring healing and reorder to those families that have been impacted and friends. And um, God, help us as followers of you to be those that demonstrate, God, in this life what healing looks like what love of neighbor looks like, what love of you looks like. Um, God, use us as people that pray, especially for your kingdom to come in this earth as it is in heaven. So uh, again, thank you, God, for the peace that you bring. Thank you for the healing that you promise one day will come. And we anchor our hopes, Lord, in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen, amen, amen. So uh, why don't you guys... Open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Acts, chapter 21. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have ushers that would love to ush you over a Bible. Um, Acts, chapter 21. If you guys don't have a Bible, uh, don't own a Bible, that is, uh, please feel free to keep this. Our, our gift to you guys. So, we've been in a series in the book of Acts for kind of a long time. I think this is actually message 67, so it's a lengthy Books, probably one of the largest, longest New Testament books. So we've been in this for obviously a lengthy amount of time. 
But we are nearing the end. So um, we are coming close to kind of the completion of this. And so the hope would be that we will be done with this book by around December-ish, end of you know, November, which really isn't that far away. It's kind of shocking how do we already end another year. Um, but we're there. And uh, once we're done with this book, probably around December, we will kind of move into sort of like an Advent type of a series like we've done for the past many, many years, focusing upon uh, Jesus and what we would call theologically the incarnation, God coming into this flesh and uh, fix our mind and our heart and preparation for that. And then uh, we will be coming into the new year already, 2018, which is crazy. We're already here. And uh, we will be beginning, uh, as we've been announcing a lot, what's called the Year of Biblical Literacy. So again, we've had a lot of you guys ask, what in the world is Year of Biblical Literacy, or Y-O-B-L? Um, what does that mean? And it is uh, it's two things. One, it is a, uh, in a, a call, an invitation for you to participate in reading through the entire Bible in the entire year. And to do that... Um, there's apps that are available, free apps that you can download. There's free videos that correspond with every book in the entire Bible put out by the Bible Project, if you're familiar with that. Um, that they're amazing stuff, amazing, amazing, amazing. Theologically, just awesome stuff that's available. It's all free. And uh, so that's the personal through the Bible reading. The second aspect is actually doing the personal element within the context of community, meaning uh, you read through Scripture together as a community. And uh, right now there's actually training going on. Um, and if you would like to be a part of the training, obviously you're not going to be a part of this one because you're here, uh, but we will be having another training towards the end of the month that will be available, uh, I think it's like on a Wednesday night. Um, so you can sign up. Their information is on our website for you to go ahead and sign up for that to get involved in that. Um, or you can contact Gunther, who's also one of our pastors. If you can't remember his name, you can come talk to me. I'm happy to get you connected. But the idea is to basically read through Scripture together in community. So as you meet weekly or you know, bi-monthly or whatever it is, whether it be in a coffee shop or in a home or in a restaurant or how you do it, early morning, midday, late at night, if you're a college student, you're like up at 12 o'clock at night, like this Bible study at midnight. Um, I, I would have already been asleep for three hours. And um, anyways, the point is, is that you read through scripture together and you tackle the tough questions that scripture oftentimes raises in our hearts and our minds, but you do it with the accompanying um, curriculum that is available on the Your Biblical Literacy website. So again, if you want more information about that, I'd gladly share, you guys, share with you guys a little bit about that. But beginning of the new year, what I was going to get at is we'll probably spend a few uh, weeks focusing on some unique uh, teachings that have to do with uh, Scripture, like some of the big questions, like can we even trust Scripture? What is the authority of Scripture? And how do we even get this thing called the Bible? And what is the Bible? And all these types of big questions that I think are very um, um, on the forefront of a lot of people's minds today. So anyways, there you go. There's the next several months for you. But let's, uh, let's uh, focus on the here and now, which is the book of Acts chapter 21. So let me, um, let, what I want to do this morning is <clears throat> we're going to read uh, verses 1 through around 16. I'm going to read through that just in, in, in total. I will make some comments as I go. And uh, before we do that, I'll, I'll pray. And uh, just kind of an exposition of all of that. I'll, like I said, I'll pause and make some comments as we read through that. And then what I want to do is I'm going to circle back. I want to focus on what I would describe as basically three movements that are actually at play within the passage here. And not just in this passage, but sort of uh, on replay throughout the rest of the book, beginning in chapter 1 all the way to the very end of the book of Acts. So um, the, I'll, I'll tell you what those are right now so you can at least be thinking about them as we read through the passage. Um, this morning's message is called The Will of the Lord Be Done. That'll, that'll make sense because it's one of the passages where basically one of the main characters in the story says, well, let the will of the Lord be done. And uh, so the three movements we'll look at, I'll just kind of briefly throw them out to you so you can at least be thinking about them. The movement number one is that the gospel uh, that Paul is going around preaching actually creates a brand new and unexpected relational bond with people that you would never expect. That's number one. The gospel uh, creates a brand new unexpected relational bonds with people you normally would have never had any association or relationship with at all whatsoever. The gospel creates a way or announces the fact that your family is way bigger than what you've ever even dreamed of or imagined or thought or considered. Second thing we'll take a look at in terms of a movement in the passage is uh, that there's this companionship with God, a brand new and a new unique way that God is actually with his people in a way like never thought about before. So again, if you wrestle with the question of What's God's plan for my life? If you've ever asked the question, what should I be doing with my life, my career, my job, who should I marry, 
all these other big questions in your mind um, get answered, at least get addressed in understanding that God is actually with us in a very unique, distinct way. And it was, well, again, that will play out in the passage. The third movement that we see is that there is radical comfort in suffering. So, again, punchline in the story. Paul, this uh, story right here kind of leads us to the end of the book of Acts and through to chapter 28, so you can get a little bit of an idea as to how many more chapters we have left. But we see that at the end is that Paul is actually going to be in prison and suffer a lot for the sake of Jesus. But the beauty of that is in the midst of suffering, God is with Paul in a very unique way. God is uh, redeeming the suffering that's happening in Paul's life. So those are the three movements. Again, new and unexpected relational bonds come through the gospel. Uh, companionship with God gets announced through the gospel. And comfort in suffering gets played into our lives through the gospel. So those are the three movements. Um, let's jump into the text itself and just read through it uh, verse by verse. Let me pray first, and then uh, we'll jump in. It's all good? You guys good? You guys ready? You excited to say God's word? Both of you? Awesome. Let me pray and we'll jump in. God, thank you. Thank you so much, God, for your presence here right now. Uh, We're not abandoned. We're not forsaken. God, right now, maybe some in this very moment, even those words I just prayed, uh, bristle against their conscience because they do not believe that. They have believed the narrative that says you have abandoned, you have forsaken them because of their actions. But God, the gospel levels the playing field and says, in Christ, all are accepted in the beloved. God, I pray that you would bring about an awareness, awaken hearts of people that have distanced themselves because of their sin to the hope that's found in Jesus because of the blood of Christ. So God, I pray that you would uh, uh, open our minds to the life that's available through Christ and Christ alone. So we commit this time in your hands. We pray these things as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump in. Acts chapter 21. Let me find it myself, and then we will officially do this. All right, number one says this. And when we had parted from them and set sail... So this is going to read, just FYI, kind of like a, um, like a diary. Um, someone who is sort of on a journey. They're chronicling the story of their journey um, in this diary type of form. It's written by this guy by the name of Luke. So he's just kind of telling the story of their journey. So here we go. And when we had uh, parted from them, we set sail and we came to the strait of course of Kos. <clears throat> and the next day to Rhodes. And from there, Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, uh, we went aboard and we set sail. When we had come, to the site, come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and we landed at Tyre. And there the ship was unload of its cargo. So I'm going to pause real quick there to just kind of bring you guys into uh, a deeper understanding. I got a, got a map for you. You're welcome. You guys love maps. Here we go. Um, so kind of show you a little bit about what the story is happening here. So in case you want to depict it or pick it in your mind, here's what it is. So um, it be in the upper left-hand corner for you guys, you see that city called Miletus. That's um, on the ancient uh, terrain called Asia Minor. Uh, it's modern-day Turkey, in case you're wondering where in the world is that. It's modern-day Turkey. So Miletus was where we started, chapter, chapter 21, uh, verse 1. Paul leaves Miletus, he goes down, you can see there's like a, a lot of, a big set of islands right around there. Paul's uh, on a ship, probably some sort of a cargo ship, making its way through that. So don't imagine that this is like luxury. Paul's not sitting back, drinking martinis, and just like having a chill time. This is probably like nasty, dank, just smells like, you know, mushrooms, and it's just not clean, and there's rats, and it's just a horrible situation that's going on. There's very likely prisoners on board. So everything you would imagine that's just nasty is probably exactly what Paul is going through right here. So don't, don't imagine luxury. So Paul's going through kind of this uh, region of islands. He goes to this area called Rhodes. So Rhodes, the ancient city of Rhodes, is a massive city, or at least had a massive city seaport. In fact, um, it was home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this massive statue, I think like 90, 
90 feet high or something like that is what it was. Really large, kind of golden or bronze type of a statue. Um, I think it was a Poseidon, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it had fallen down underneath an earthquake. But it was this massive, like, a landmark that, um, again, Luke just doesn't give any detail on it. So imagine you're chronicling the story, writing down the details, and you go to this massively beautiful city. Like, you just omit it. It's, just, it's not even a, not in your mind because Luke's thinking of other things. Luke's thinking about where the journey's taking them. The journey obviously involves the gospel and God's presence and all those other types of things. So uh, it's not really on a sightseeing tour. So they go uh, to this region of Patera, uh, that little island right smack in the middle. It's called Cyprus. Um, and again, the detail of the story is we passed it on our left. I don't know, any sailors here? Is that like starboard or what, what do they call that? Port board? Port side? Port board? I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a sailor, but um, anyways, you get the idea. So um, you, they pass Cyprus. They make their way down to the region of, of Tyre. So down in Tyre, next uh, little picture up here in the upper, there's kind of just another like region. So you see Tyre. They make their way down to Ptolemais, um, then Caesarea. Caesarea is in modern-day Israel. Um, it's called Sarah, uh, Caesarea Maritima. Um, it's a beautiful seaport city. Like right now, it's, it's uninhabited. So if you've ever gone to Israel or done a tour of the Holy Land, at some point, you will end up going to Caesarea. It's actually one of my favorite cities. Um, it's, it's this beautiful city. You get this idea was that it was massive. It was really large, right overlooking the ocean. It's so, so pretty. There's a Roman aqueduct that just spans a very, very lengthy period of, of space or a span of space all the way to the mountain ranges of Mount Hermon. And uh, there was actually a hippodrome right there on the seacoast. We like, have no idea. What's a hippodrome? Hippodrome uh, was ancient form of NASCAR. And uh, it was a horse racing. So they would sit around, they'd watch horses, like overlooking the ocean, beautiful uh, viewpoint, watching horses race. They had this big theater. In fact, to this day, you can go into theater, um, talk, and it's just amazing. Like thousands and thousands of people could sit right there. And this, this would have been the area that, that Paul and his companions would have gone to. And then they made their way to Antipatris and then uh, all the way down into Jerusalem. So that's a little bit of a, a map uh, detailing some of the situation that we're going on. So verse... Four, it says, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So one of the things I noticed here, obviously, is that wherever Paul went, um, he was not just passively um, interacting with other followers of Jesus. He was actively seeking them out. So what's the distinction? I think the distinction is oftentimes the way that we can sometimes train ourselves into thinking is that, like, if people love me, they will seek me out. In other words, it's kind of self-focused, which sometimes can almost become like a self-fulfilling, broken prophecy. It's like we set ourselves up for failure. We're like, if people really love me, they will seek me out, and we go to a new area, a new Bible study, a new community. No one seeks us out, and we get really mad. We're like, ah, frustrated. But on the contrary, what Paul is doing is, like, I'm seeking out actively other disciples. Like Paul's aim is anytime he goes into a new territory, new region, new seaport, new whatever, uh, he's looking for other followers of Jesus. He wants to connect with them and interact with them. Um, I've, in years past, um, I've traveled a lot. And every time I travel, one of the things I love to do more than anything is I love going into new areas and going to new churches, new places of worship of all different types and flavors and tribes. Now, my tribe that I got saved into, like back long, long time ago, uh, was Calvary Chapel down in Costa Mesa. That's how I met Jesus. That's, that's my tribe. It's my family. Um, I didn't pick it. God picked it for me. It's like, that's, that's what I got saved into. One of the things I love to do, I love to go to other communities that are not Calvary Chapel. They're totally different, totally different tribe, different you know, uh, uh, idea of how to follow Jesus, different flavors, different ways of expressing the beauty of Jesus. And, uh, and again, I, I think there's something beautiful about that, being able to see the work of the Spirit, God's uh, kingdom going forth in expressive ways that just are, are organic to the work of God. And it's what Paul did. He's always looking for other followers of Jesus everywhere he went. So it um, goes on and says, in And I'll actually come back to the little section where it talks about through the Spirit, the disciples that were there basically told Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Again, we'll come back to why that was an issue. Verse 5, it says, And when our days there were ended, we departed, and we went on a journey, uh, and they all, and the wives and the children, they accompanied us until 
we were outside of the city, and then kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and then we said farewell to one another. And we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So this is, again, another, another parting, another moment where Paul is going to leave these people whom he loves, who's he, uh, whom he has developed deep uh, relational bonds with. Again, we will come back to identifying this in terms of one of the movements that we see. Uh, verse 7, it says, And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers, which is a really unique phrase that, that Luke actually introduces here. Uh, it's a very good, likely possibility that the quote-unquote brothers, or some of your translations might say brethren, um, it's a gender-neutral phrase, which just basically means those within the faith. It's actually a word that, that describes genuine brotherliness. And so the word that Luke actually uses here is very expressive of the type of bonds and relationships that are built within Christian communities, or at least in the first century, the way it should have been. And now, again, if your experience in Christian community is not this, um, it's, if it's just only superficial, if it's just deep, or it's, uh, it lacks a, a, a depth or a connectedness with other people, um, know that there's more to be found. More, know that there's more to be had. That God's aim is to actually create brotherly types of familial types of relationships. And this is the type of relationship that Paul had with these people. And again, like I said, I mentioned that these people are probably not uh, Jewish people, which again adds to the, not only the complexity, but the beauty of this, that Paul formerly, before he was a Christian, Paul would have never hung out with non-Jewish people or Gentile people. Paul actually would have had sort of a prejudice against Gentile people. But here, fast forward a handful of year, years, Paul is actually radically transformed, met Jesus, and here he is interacting with people that he normally would have never interacted with. It's because that's what the gospel does, is it, is it broadens our field, it broadens our family, helps us to realize that our family is far bigger than what we could ever even imagine. And so Paul, or the writer Luke, actually in the story, describes these people that they're connecting with as actually brothers. Not physical brothers, not blood brothers, but in a sense, blood brothers. Blood brothers through the relationship of Jesus, his blood, bringing them together. Deep family type of relationships. It says that we stayed with them for one day. Uh, And then he says, on the next day, we departed and we came to Caesarea and we entered in the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. And we stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So again, one of the interesting things just kind of to note about this is that uh, in writing this story, Luke is not in any, this is not uh, scandalous. Luke is basically pointing out the fact that, hey, this guy has four daughters. They're all virgins, meaning they haven't married yet. And they all prophesy. They all have this unique gift of hearing from God, speaking for God, and communicating um, for God words that God gives to them, to the church, to the community. Paul would later say that the whole point of prophecy is to actually build up the community of people. So what we see really clearly, um, that there, were, there was a very large voice given to women in the early church even. Um, and there were some restrictions. Again, we've looked at these restrictions uh, as well. But the main point, again, that I want to just really emphasize, that I think when church context has this tendency to completely stifle and cut off and remove uh, a placement for women to speak to the, to the community, um, it's, it's actually doing it not in alignment with New Testament Scripture and how the Bible and how the, the, how the church was actually flowing. This was just a normal Thing. And again, if it wasn't normal, then Luke would not have actually stated it. Um, it was just normal. There's not even a conflict there because Luke doesn't even um, communicate. Well, he doesn't give caveats like, well, they were also next. He just simply expresses it, that four virgin daughters, and they all, they all prophesy. They have a unique role within that context of that area of the church. It goes on. It says in uh, verse 10, while we were... Staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet and his hands, and he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bond or bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over into the hands of the Gentiles. So, verse 12, he says, When he heard this, he and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Don't you know that I'm ready to not only be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem 
for the name of the Lord Jesus? And since he would not be persuaded, he ceased, or we had all ceased, and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. So what's happening here? So again, in short, in brief, there's this guy named Agabus. We're, we're actually introduced him a little bit earlier in the book of Acts. Um, and he's a unique guy. We're, we're told that he's a prophet. So he has a unique role in the church to speak forth uh, probably what would be described as like spontaneous words and then go through this process, which I'll talk about in just a moment, to interpret those things and then to apply those things. All right? So he is receiving revelation from God, interpreting what that revelation from God is, and then applying that revelation. In this context, what he receives from God is that, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and when going to Jerusalem, there is danger ahead. So he interprets that as it's not a good thing. Then he applies it to Paul by saying, therefore, dot, 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 you should not go. Now, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But the point is that this seemed to be uh, an on, is a type of occurrence that was happening in their church. It was a way to discern, to understand what is God up to? How is God leading us? And how do we follow God? And one of the things I would just say with regard to this is that Paul basically says, look, I... I'm aware of what lay ahead of me. I realize going to Jerusalem is going to be hostile territory for me. Again, because Paul, there was all these rumors circulating. So again, remember, Paul had gone into all sorts of Gentile, non-Jewish regions. So what was happening was a lot of non-Jewish people were coming to faith in Jesus. So the big question that was being asked by a lot of the people was, what do we do with these Gentile people now that they're part of this quasi-Jewish Messiah, Jesus is no quasi, but he really is, truly is a Jewish Messiah. But this new quasi type of religion or community that involves a Jewish Messiah, but it seems to be broadening itself to include non-Jewish people. In other words, so this is where it gets kind of a little tricky because, for example, let's say you are a Jewish community. You have been raised, bred, taught, fed, a diet that's kosher, meaning the idea of eating a pork sandwich or bacon would be absolutely off limits. You would never even think that you would find that radically detestable. And you would actually probably likely look at people that enjoy bacon or BLT or something that have, you know, pork product as just detestable, disgusting people. And now those people that you would look at with disdain are coming to your house coming to your table, and they whip out of their back pocket or their satchel a BLT, and they're like, hey, what's up? And they're like eating the BLT, and they're like, let's study the Bible together, and let's talk about Jesus, and they're eating their BLT, and there you are, you're like freaking out, you're like, I can't, what are you, are you, you, you can't do that, you're freaking out, because you find that type of behavior reprehensible, and now it's not just the random one once in a while Gentile person coming to your Bible study. Now this thing's being ransacked, hijacked by multitudes of non-Jewish Gentile people that have no, no, no problems with pork sandwiches. And they're coming to your house, and now you feel this sense of like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my Jewish identity, and maybe, maybe I may even be doing something that's in deep violation to God. And this is the type of world that, that Paul is interacting with, interfacing with. And so, again, what I would say with regard to this is that what was happening is that the gospel was going forward into all these particular unique areas that were very Gentile. And here we see Paul having deep relationships with a lot of these people. And as he's going forth into these other unknown regions, a lot of the Jewish people that had known Paul were deeply hostile towards him because they, they found Paul's openness to these non-Jewish or Gentile people, something of disdain. They hated Paul for that. And so everywhere Paul went, there was this, this worry that if Paul goes back to Jerusalem, these rumors which are following Paul everywhere he goes are going to find him, and the Jews back in Jerusalem are going to they're going to arrest Paul. They might beat Paul. Maybe a mob rule. They might kill Paul. So there's this deep fear on behalf of a lot of these people. And everywhere Paul went, there was sort of this reoccurring theme that, that yes, this is how we sense Paul. This is what we think is probably happening. And because of that, there was this likely response to saying, Paul, we don't think you should go to Jerusalem. If you go, Paul, we're going we're gonna to lose you. You will die. But Paul's response was, look, guys, what are you doing breaking my heart? I know this is where God wants me to go. 
Yes, I realize. I realize that suffering may befall me, and I realize I'm going into hostile territory. I may be going into the very mouth of the dragon itself, but don't you understand? I'm, I'm ready to die for Jesus. See, let me put it in another way of describing this. For Paul, what Paul is saying, don't you realize the greatest treasure in my life is Jesus? There's nothing greater, nothing more beautiful, nothing that more outshines the value, the beauty, the weightiness of Christ in my life than Christ. I want to be where he's at. I will do anything to be with him. And no matter what types of circumstances, even if those circumstances may be to the destruction of my own life, Paul says, don't you realize I don't even count my own life of greater value than what I found in Jesus? Do you realize that this, this is what Christianity is, by the way? This is not just some sort of like, oh, Paul's radical. No, no, no. This is normal Christianity. Like a normal Christian looks at Jesus and says, Jesus is literally far, be- far better, far weightier, far more valuable, far more beautiful than anything else this world can offer. He's king. He's Lord. He's creator. I mean, every single color that we absorb or uh, delight in or find joy in, in this world. It all comes from his palate. In other words, he's the source of it all. Everything in this world that I find delight and joy in, whether it be a relationship or a child or the prospect of a job or being able to live on the Central Coast and San Luis Obispo and have all this amazing stuff at our fingertips, every last bit of it comes off of the palate of the creator. So what's of greater value? Our creator. For Paul, he's saying that, look, don't you understand? I will do anything for him. And if suffering is part of that future, that was a part of his future. And if, and if, and if I have even the slightest ability to suffer, like, then, then I would be able to be just like him. Not saving, not redemptive in that sense. You get the idea. But Paul is saying that, look, if Christ suffered, I, I, I don't have a problem suffering for him. He truly is my treasure. It's one of those questions we have to wrestle with. What is our greatest treasure? What is the thing that we would look at right now that we would say to live without that thing would be death to me? It would be suffering. If I didn't have that thing, oh my gosh, I would come undone. It could be a relationship. I mean, think, if it's a relationship, what would happen if I didn't have this person to call up or to sit down or to hold their hand or to text or to take a photo with and post on Instagram. What would life be like if that, that thing somehow just all of a sudden self-destructed or, the, or job or prospect of buying a house or a career or some sort of new toy or vehicle that you have? What would happen if the prospect of those things somehow just came undone and you lost it all? So what Paul is saying is that to anchor our hope in Jesus literally is an eternal anchor, meaning you cannot destruct, destroy God. <laughs> so therefore, if, anch- if your hope is anchored in him, you cannot destroy that hope. Does that make sense? If your hope is affixed or connected to something fallible or breakable, or prone to rust, or corruption, or coming undone, or loss, or death, if if that's where your ultimate hope is connected to, when that thing dies, or fades away, or corrupts, or breaks apart, or the bottom falls out, then we self-destruct with it. We come undone. Our suffering is so oftentimes linked to the thing that we love the most. And what Paul is saying is that, look, my hope is anchored in Christ alone. And if suffering is a part of my future, then so be it. So let's wrap this up and we'll kind of circle back and make some really brief comments and I'm done. So it goes on to say in the very last uh, little passage here in verse 13, it says, after these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea uh, went with us and bringing to us the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, uh, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And so we don't really have any idea who this guy is, but um, obviously he was important in the text. Luke 
mentions him, and Paul hangs out, has a sleepover with Manasseh. So, anyways, we'll pick this up again next week, but I want to close with some uh, thoughts that we kind of mentioned earlier. So, number one is this idea that the gospel actually provides or announces these new and unexpected relational bonds. And there's a couple passages to think about. I mean, you can look back at verse 36 of chapter 20. I'm going to read that one because we looked at that last, uh, I don't know, four weeks ago actually now. But Paul's uh, praying with a group of guys that are, that are not Jewish. And he's weeping with them. He's being radically vulnerable with them. Um, verse, 20, uh, verse 4 of chapter 21 Again, we mentioned that Paul seeks out these disciples, all with whom, and children, and women, and accompanied us, and outside of the city, they were kneeling down um, at this beach, and it says that we all prayed, we said farewell to, to, to one another. There was a sense of, like, deep connectedness that Paul had with these people. And again, most of these people, I would say, these were non-Jewish people. Paul has, Paul's horizon has vastly uh, been multiplied in terms of how many people that he normally once would have just simply pushed away from or alienated himself from or basically written off as being nothing more than sausage on God's barbecue to be destroyed at some point in the future. Paul actually saw them no longer as kindling for hell, but saw them as brothers, sisters, people to whom Paul says, we have the same father and we are part of the same family. So I would, I would say this, one, one last thing, I'll come back to this. Next passage, uh, next slide. Um, where men, uh, mentions that this guy named Philip, uh, the evangelist, he was one of the seven. So this is hearkening back to the early book of uh, Acts, around Acts chapter, I think, six or so, something like that, where this guy um, named Philip, he's one of seven guys that were raised up to be part of kind of some sort of service task in the early church. Um, uh, so there's one guy in particular that probably would have been really close friends. So imagine if you have been part of a service project and there's just seven of you. So in other words, small, intimate team, which you're connected, you're working side by side, these other people, you would imagine you become pretty closely connected with these people. Well, there was one of the guys that Philip would have been incredibly connected with was a guy by the name of Stephen. Stephen was part of the same service task team, task force, to serve as these older ladies within the church. Maybe not older, they were widows, we're told. So you can have young widows and older widows, but nonetheless, this was part of the service task that they were a part of. And uh, deep connections, no doubt, would have uh, been connected. What we're told earlier in the book of Acts is that um, there was this incredible persecution that took place. And this guy, Stephen, um, has this unique opportunity to, to share the gospel of Jesus. And so here he's out preaching. And uh, all of a sudden, the leaders in the early church, they become irate. They pick up stones and they actually murder this guy, Stephen, right in front of, who knows, maybe dozens, if not hundreds of people. Stephen is literally killed. And then there's this little uh, passage at the very end of that story. It says, and someone took the clothes of Stephen and laid them at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Fast forward, a bunch of years, Paul, now his name changes, which is a common occurrence, shows up in the house of Philip, Stephen's good close friend. How's that relationship? Fine, it seems like. Why? Jesus heals. Jesus restores. Um, no doubt, at one point, Philip would have looked at Paul and says, that guy is the greatest enemy. We need to pray that Jesus kills him or something or changes him or does something. And now, fast forward a handful of years, here's Paul showing up in Philip's house. And there's this bond of love relationship because that's what Jesus does. He heals brokenness, heals broken relationships. And... Uh, so we see that there's this new and really, in some ways, unexpected relational bonds that begin to develop in one who's been radically transformed by, by Jesus. So next slide, and we'll wrap this up very quickly, is uh, we also see this element of companionship with God that begins to be kind of unfolded. Now, again, uh, this sort of answers this question or attempts to at least address the question of, of how do we discern God's will? In other words, a question like, what, God, what do you have for my life? Let me just suggest this. Have you ever had that question? Like, God, what do you have for my life? What do you, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to marry? Oftentimes the big ones, right? The big, big ones. Um, like, who do you have for me to marry? What job do you have for me? What... Uh, city do you want me to move to? What church do you want to be? Now, I, I would suggest if you are a follower of Jesus, at some point, those questions become part of your, your, your mindset. They're on your radar. You begin to ask them because um, this is going to sound deeply theologically profound, but here you go. Um, 
followers of Jesus, you ready for this? This this is the big punchline. Followers of Jesus, dot, 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 follow Jesus. It's really profound, I know. I'm going to say it again because it's so profound. Followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. So so let let me reverse this. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have never thought about asking God, those big questions. God, what do you have for my life? Where do you want me to go? What church do you want me to be part of, invested in, and give my time, my energy, my, my treasure, my talents to? God, what job or company are you calling me to be a part of? Where do you want me to live? What type of people do you want me to hang out with? If those questions never play into the repertoire of your life, it's a very good possibility. You have a religion, but you don't have a relationship. You're going about certain religious aspects and elements, but really what God is interested in is relationship, to guide us. And if Jesus truly is king, what that means is as king, he organizes and orders and orients our lives to follow him. Again, followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. It's it's pretty simple, but it's radically profound and radically difficult. Because what that means, the demand is, is to constantly keep bringing my heart back to saying, Lord, how do you want me to follow you? How do you want me to think about this circumstance? How do you want me to construct and think about my future? How do you want me to think about this relationship? Who do you want me to be invested in terms of relationship? What church do you want me to be a part of? These are big questions that Jesus actually wants to direct us. And here's the flip side of this. This is not always very clear. It's not always very clear. I mean, God does not always just simply give us uh, A to Z in terms of the plan for our lives. Oftentimes, uh, I like to think of it this way, God kind of gives us these little breadcrumbs. And our job is to like, look around the landscape and determine where's the next breadcrumb. So we're looking from, uh, from the hand of God, these little breadcrumbs that God dropped for us. And that's kind of what I see is happening with the life of Paul, is that Paul is asking these big questions. God, what do you have for me? Paul seems to be pretty focused on the fact that uh, at least he seems pretty determined that that pathway involves going to Jerusalem. Now, that being said, okay, this is kind of where it plays in the text. Uh, almost everybody that we've seen play into the storyline of Luke's account, um, they all resonate together that going to Jerusalem will without question involve some level of suffering, pain, and imprisonment. Maybe even death. No one really knows. Paul feels that. This guy Agabus feels that. These community of followers of Jesus, they all feel this. But then the big question becomes, what should be done about this? Should Paul then go to, uh, go to this area? So we're actually told here in the passage, now listen to this. Um, it says in around verse uh, 4. It says, and having sought out the disciples, it says, uh, they stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they said, they were telling Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Later, this guy, uh, Agabus, who's kind of playing out this prophetic role, he basically says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews in Jerusalem will both bind the man with the belt and deliver him over to the hands of the Gentiles and so on. So again, this image, this picture is that, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you will suffer some severe consequences. So this raises a question um, that a lot of scholars have wrestled with. And again, my answer may not be sufficient for you, I realize, but just realize uh, nonetheless that there's a broad uh, spectrum of trying to understand and interpret this. So that being said, there seemed to be this really important role of what's called prophecy that played into the early church in terms of how to discern God's will. So real briefly, if you are in this place and you're like, God, I want to I know how to follow you, how do I follow you? There's a handful of different ways in which you can discern God's path. Number one, uh, scripture. Scripture becomes one of the most important things. Study, read, pray, scripture. Uh, secondly, praying, seeking God, just coming to God and asking God directly. We, we just call that prayer. Third, um, inviting the counsel from other people, wisdom from others, becomes a really key and important part, instrumental, and help us discern the will of God. Another is prophecy, and that's what we see right here, prophecy. Now, most scholars would agree that the type of prophecy we see put on display right here is a little bit different than the type of prophecy we see in the Old Testament because there seems to be some uh, elements that are not 100% accurate. So, for example, Agabus says uh, the Jews are going to hand you over to the Gentiles. We, we, we know because you can read in the chapter ahead that this is actually not what happened. Um, the Jews did not hand Paul over. What happened were the Romans technically actually 
took Paul in, and they actually rescued Paul from this angry mob of Jewish people. So this raises the question, um, can, is there a place for New Testament prophecy? Is it valid? And again, I would say that the language that's used in the text that would describe that this is the Holy Spirit guiding, leading. Now, this raises the question. There's, most scholars would agree that there's three different ways to think about prophecy. So, for example, if someone gets an idea in their mind, they're like, hey, I think God may be uh, speaking a word for you or this or this circumstance or this church in this particular way. There's three ways. Number one is the revelation. So the question is, what did God say? Like, revelation, did God say something? What was it? Number two is interpretation. Like, what does that mean? So you got to go through this process of interpreting. What in the world does that mean? That idea, that impression, that concept, that word that came from God or assumably came from God, what does it mean? Number three is application. So if that is from God, and if this is what the interpretation is, how do you apply that? So some scholars would, would agree that, that if what these guys were saying is the application, the, the uh, revelation, interpretation, and application, if this is all 100% in uniform accuracy then Paul was wrong to go to Jerusalem. In other words, Paul was violating the direct will of God. You guys, you guys following so far? You guys doing okay? Following? Both of you. Good. All right. Um, that Paul would be violating the direct will of God because all of these guys are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. So that's the problem because, for one, the text doesn't say that Paul actually violated the Spirit of God um, and a handful of other elements as well. But... Some of that actually suggested that maybe what's actually happening was they may have gotten the revelation correct. They may have even gotten the interpretation correct, meaning Paul's going to suffer if he goes to Jerusalem. But what they got wrong was the application. So why did they apply it in a way of saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem? They love him. They think Paul's better and most effective um, not behind bars or not dead. They think Paul would probably do a better job preaching gospel, um, not laying on the ground dead in the middle of a bunch of angry mob rule city. So they love Paul. They don't want to see Paul die. So this raises the question of, I think, how prophecy can oftentimes work is, is uh, have ears that are willing to say, God, I want to hear you speak. And John, earlier in the New Testament, actually says, don't despise prophecies, but test them. So there seems to be this process. And there's a lot more I can say about this, and I'm, I'm going to be done. All right, lastly, is I want to take a look at the subject of how the gospel creates this uh, context for comfort, even within suffering. So point is, um, in this world, no matter who you are, whether you are an, an adherent to following Jesus, or you are an atheist, or somewhere in between, like an agnostic, the bad news is you will all suffer, <laughs> Bad news. You will all suffer. Suffering is something that is implicit to being human and having brain functionality. We all suffer. We can't avoid suffering. The difference within the context of Christianity is that Christianity actually says that suffering, the worst suffering can do to you and I is what? What's the worst suffering can do to us? Anybody? Is that a trick question? Death. It's worse, right? That's, that's the right answer. Correct. Good job. Um, say it with boldness. Death. Death. We, we, we can speak about death and not be afraid of it because we know that death is not the end. How? Because that's what happened to Jesus. He suffered. He died. He resurrected. And Paul has this hope that I know because I'm, I'm in Christ, though I suffer in Jerusalem, Though I might even die, I'm going to be raised again. The hope of the Christian is not that your life is a story of joys, suffering, and then at some point, death, period, the end. The hope of the Christian is joys commingled with elements of suffering, with some more joys, death, resurrection. That's our hope. And Paul has this great hope. And this is why Paul can say, look, even in the midst of suffering, I know that Christ will make all good. Let me read these last passages, and I'm going to wrap this up. In fact, I'm going to have the worship team come on up while I'm reading this, so you guys can just listen to these as I read this. And just think about it. I'm not even going to comment on it. I'm just going to read it. Just let the passages themselves 
bring and breathe, maybe a comfort to your heart as you listen to this. So the context is Paul. Uh, this is probably believed to be one of the last letters that Paul had actually written in the entire New Testament before he died. So Paul's writing this to a young man by the name of Timothy, and he's basically looking at his life, and he's assessing, he's realizing that Paul is literally writing this from prison. Why? Because he went to Jerusalem. <laughs> that's, that's where it, it all began. Paul, you know, defiantly went to Jerusalem, or maybe according to God's plan, went to Jerusalem. And in going to Jerusalem, Paul incites a riot, gets thrown in prison, and then finds himself in a prison for a long time, and then dies. Paul's reflecting upon his life, and he's writing to this young man, Timothy, and he's imparting wisdom. And listen to how Paul recaps his, his life in the context of suffering. Just listen, and then we'll wrap it up. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit that's entrusted to you. That's the summary of Paul's words. Yes, suffering exists. But, because we have a God that takes the worst that suffering can bring about in our lives, death, and he repurposes it. It's called resurrection. And you are invited into that resurrection story. It means if you're not a Christian here this morning, for example, the invitation for you is to look at your life, to turn from alternate stories, alternate narratives that involve life, suffering, and then conclude at death and invite the resurrecting God who takes all the brokenness and gives life. If you're here, follower of Jesus. The invitation for you is to truly follow Jesus. To ask him, what does it look like for him to truly be king of your life? So, why don't we all stand? Let me pray. We'll sing. Partake of communion. Communion is the broken bread cup that remind us that, first and foremost, we are invited to a table. A table. A meal food. (laughs) If you really want to get explicit, food, Jesus, the king, your creator, the one who gave you the capacity to breathe and then created its counterpart, breath, oxygen, to correspond with your lungs. That Jesus who framed you, who made you, who loves you, who knows you, is not put off by you. He actually invites you. He says, come, come to the table. Come eat. Come drink. Come share a meal with me. God, thank you for uh, the invitation. And right now, we respond and say yes. You're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Invitation for you to ask Jesus to wash you, to cleanse you, to know that as you do that, Jesus will wash and cleanse and forgive your sin and your shame and cover you. So God, as we sing now, inhabit the praises of your people. If you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything, um, I'll be up in the front. I'd love to pray with you. I'll have some other leaders available to pray with you as well. Just pray for whatever. If you're not a Christian, you want to become a Christian, I'd love to pray with you. If you are a Christian and you're having a hard time trying to figure out how to follow Jesus, I'd love to pray for you for that. You just got confusion, maybe there's sickness, whatever is going on in your life. Love, I'd pray for you. So let's sing.